Hi, I'm Michael McKenzie. Welcome to RN First Bite. And we try to remain ahead of the curve here, you know. That's why when I lay out a tablecloth at Sydney's Royal Botanic Gardens, I like to make sure it's interactive. And what does that mean? I'll tell you later, after we take tea with Hannah Dupree. Tea is the most wonderful drink in the world. I love when the big, beefy, wild Englishmen that you think are soccer hooligans come in and ask for a nice cup of green tea. It's one of my favourite experiences of the day. And if you've ever wondered where tea comes from, it's the Chinese. And if it wasn't them inventing food or names for it, it's the Persians and the alchemy of spice emerging from their ancient kitchens. I also happen to know that ketchup was at the centre of global trade 500 years ago and that it was so prized it prompted conquest of the new world. And I know all this because I've been reading Dan Jarafsky. He's a professor of linguistics at Stanford University and he's just published The Language of Food. A linguist reads the menu. And Dan, you didn't just read one menu, did you? You read 6,500. Yes, reading 6,500 menus would be a big chore for even a very picky eater. So we use computers for this. I'm a computational linguist, and so we wrote software to analyze all of these menus and look at the word patterns across different kinds of restaurants. And you discovered some fascinating correlations between restaurant financial status and the kind of words used to describe the food. Absolutely. So the more expensive the restaurant, for example, the more fancy, long, complicated words they use. In fact, you can predict the price of a dish on the menu. Every extra letter the average word has, you're going to be paying an extra 19 cents for that dish on the menu. And what's intriguing, too, is the kinds of words that are being used, not only the length, but also if you get a menu from a reasonably cheap restaurant, not only will you have more choices on the menu, but the word you, Y-O-U, is used far more regularly than it is in top-end menus. Absolutely. So the cheaper the restaurant, the more we talk about having things your way, any way you like, your choice, whereas the more expensive the menu, it's, it's all about the chef, the chef's choice, the chef's selection. It's as if the more we pay, we're paying someone else to do our choosing for us. And if we're getting a cheap restaurant, they're letting us pick. You've uncovered one of the deep flaws at the very heart of American society, Dan, in this book. And what is wrong with your country when they associate the word entree with mains? What is wrong with you? Oh, uh, you Australians. Everyone thinks we have it wrong, but the story is actually much more interesting than that. So everyone thinks, well, entree obviously means entrance in French, so it ought to describe the appetizing course, the first course in a meal. But if you look at the history of the word entree, back to the 16th century, the word actually didn't mean the very first thing. It meant the first entering large meat course. So over the years, as lots of complicated menus full of lots of different dishes collapsed into our modern, simple, appetizer, main, dessert kind of menu, the word entree migrated from the first of many meat courses after maybe some soups and other things to mean the main course itself. And that was the meaning it had all the way until in, in France as well. So it was, it was not until about 1930 in France that the word entree stopped meaning this meaty main course and began to mean an appetizer. So it's actually in French and then in the UK in general and in Australia, 
that the word actually changed its meaning. So really, the American meaning is the older one. And by the way, if you're wondering why we raise a toast with alcohol, it's because we used to put toast in our wassels, where of course it became sop, and then it became soup. Absolutely. So we think of modern drinks like wine and and soup as clear liquids, but that's just not how they were eaten in the Middle Ages. There were lots of great nutrients in both kinds of liquid. We would flavor wines with toasts that were spiced with different kinds of spices, galangal and ginger. And the same thing with uh, stews. Would you would put bread into your stews, and you would eat these sops of bread. And this sop, this idea of this kind of wet piece of bread. Gave its name to the dish soup that we eat today. And where does the term wassail come from? So lots of languages. When you drink, you drink to someone's health. And wassail was the is the Anglo-Saxon way to drink to health. You said wassail, and the response was drink hail. And in fact, I think you talk about how in various cultures. When you were toasted, it's still that expression: the toast of the town. You're acclaimed by a number of people through the raising of a glass, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that、uh, you're celebrated for the right thing. No, absolutely not. So the the word first began to be used. It looks like in the in the 18th century in England for a woman who was the hit of the party or the the、uh, belle of the ball, and you, they said she flavored the evening as the spice toast flavored the wine, which、so、could have some a, dubious a, morals attached. Exactly, to it. a bit of a sideways compliment. Yeah. Now let's get to this bombshell where I began this conversation, which is that ketchup is the symbol of the powers and struggle. For global food supremacy and trade, let's begin that story where it should in China. So ketchup comes from a Chinese dialect word, a word in the Fujianese dialect of Chinese, that means fermented fish sauce. So jup means sauce, and goa means a kind of fermented fish. So think back to the 17th century. We've got English and Dutch sailors trading to Asia. They're looking for silk. They're looking for porcelain. They're looking for tea, and And what are they going to drink on this long trip crossing the equator? They have wine, they have beer, but those both go bad. Those both go sour in the heat of the equator, because distilled liquors hadn't been invented yet. So when the British and the Dutch got to Indonesia, they found that Chinese fish sauce makers and soy sauce makers had emigrated to various parts of Southeast Asia, and they'd brought with them not just fish sauce and soy sauce, but they were also distilling alcohol, an alcohol called arrack. Which is an early ancestor of rum. Rum hadn't been invented yet, and so the navies were very excited. They bought thousands of barrels of arrack from these Chinese distillers, and they bought their fish sauce on the side, and they brought that back to England. And slowly, the fish sauce evolved. So tomatoes came from the New World much later, say around 1800. They added tomatoes, and then the fish slowly,、uh, uh, by 1850, say the fish stopped being added, and you got a more of a sweet tomato sauce, and slowly it migrated into our modern ketchup. And back in those days,、uh, you make the point that when the European traders were over there in China buying up these gallons of both arrack and fermented fish sauce, that China was thought of in terms of awe when it comes to its global trading power. Absolutely. So you know, what I learned in school is that. In about the 1400s, the Ming Dynasty came to power in China, and China turned inward and languished. And only by Europeans sort of dragging China into the modern economic world in the 19th century or 20th century, even the 21st, did China kind of come back. And ketchup really tells you that's not true. The reason why 
English and Dutch and Portuguese traders were there in Asia was because Asia was the industrial center of the world until quite late, in, until the Industrial Revolution, till say, 1750. Porcelain, silk, these were the, the goods, liquor, these were the goods that people were buying, the manufactured goods, and all of them were being produced in Asia. So, so that drove the demand for Chinese goods and services along with the ketchup, and in return, the Chinese wanted silver. Absolutely. And so the desire to get this silver led the age of exploration. It led Europeans to discover the New World, to find the silver mines and the gold mines, and to enslave, and unfortunately enslave a lot of people to mine the silver and gold from those mines to use as their currency in China. You know, we think of globalization as a modern phenomenon, but really... Every food we eat is a result of these really ancient globalizations 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And everything we do is a product of this combination of lots of civilizations together. Okay, jumping forward five centuries to now. And Dan, it seems whatever we eat these days, we have to blog about it. You've crunched the data on what kinds of words we use in this digital form of food media. And it's really interesting because although there's different descriptors, overall, it seems to be a pretty positive experience. Yes, people in general are positive. If you look at the average review score, it's not in the middle. It's tilted sharply toward the positive end of the scale. And when they do write these positive reviews, they interestingly differ in their language between the expensive restaurants and the cheap restaurants. So if a reviewer likes an expensive restaurant, they talk about sex. They talk about seductively seared foie gras or very naughty deep-fried pork belly, demonstrating maybe their, their sensuous, hedonistic nature. But if you like a cheap restaurant or cheap food, you talk about it as a drug. You say, oh, those wings, they're addicting, or the chocolate in those cookies, it must have crack in it. And it seems like we're embarrassed about these junk foods. We talk about the food as an addiction because we're feeling guilty. So we're placing the blame on the food. It's not my fault I ate that fried food. It made me. I couldn't resist it. It's the cupcake that made me do it. But if you go upmarket, you're allowed to be carnal. Exactly. That's sex, and that's, that's, of course that's okay. Thank you for joining us on our Oh, Thanks so much for, for having me. You can find out more about Dan's book at RN First Bite online. Just head to abc.net.au slash rn. And the good news is Dan is dropping back in with other linguistic food tales in months to come. Now, despite our strong relationship with wine, I think it's fair to say we still think of ourselves traditionally as a nation of beer drinkers. However... History tells us another tale. In colonial times, Australians were considered the biggest tea drinkers in the world. And our yearning for the leaf has recently gone through a resurgence. It's now really hip to drink tea, with specialist shops popping up all over the place. RN's Anita Barrow caught up with Hannah Dupree at her Melbourne store Storm in a Teacup for a few lessons in how to do it right. is the most wonderful drink in the world. What most people don't know is that all tea actually comes from the one plant and it's just how it's processed in the factory that makes it into the, all the different styles of tea. So everything else like peppermint, lemon, grass and ginger, rosehip, all of that isn't actually tea. That's so a just saying, isn't it? Saying, that's exactly right. And it comes from that one plant that originated in China. In China, that's correct. So that, that's the Camellia sinensis. It's a very similar plant to the common garden Camellia that most of us have growing in our front garden somewhere. 
So there's two main varietals. There's Sinensis sinensis from China, and then later on they discovered the Sinensis samica, which comes from the very far north of India. So that's the Assam tea. That's the Assam tea, exactly. I'm wanting to have a cup of tea. Beautiful. Right. Yeah. What are you going to serve me? Yeah, so a we'll start off with a white tea um, because it's the softest of the teas. It's had the least processing. They just pick the leaves from the tea bush and then they dehydrate them. That happens in the sun if it's a sunny climate or they have sort of gentle drying rooms where they dry the tea. So what you taste with white tea is terroir. So not what the tea master was wanting to get out of the tea leaf through processing, but actually what was going on for that tea bush at that moment, that mountain, those seasons... So what kind of tea are you going to serve? Um, first of all, I'm going to serve you an ancient moonlight, which is a white tea from Yunnan in China. Lovely. Oh, I'll get out of your way. <laughs> all right, into the magic drawer. Into the magic drawer. So there it is. It's quite large, slightly burnt-looking leaves. You can see that there's a white side of the leaf, and it's white because it's covered with those tiny little silken hairs. Um, and then you turn the leaf over, and it's black on the other side. So... Ancient moonlight, white on one side, black on the other, just like the moon. Can I smell it a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Might I sniff into your, yeah. into your hand? Yeah. That's all right. Mm. Very subtle. Very, very subtle. Yeah. And so what quality does this have that differentiates it? So there's two main styles of white tea. Um, there's your silver needle style white tea, which is just the bud, the yinqian, which originates from Fujian on the eastern coast of China. And it is just purely the unopened bud of the leaf so it looks like a silver needle because of those silver hairs that coat the leaf as the leaves mature those those hairs fall off so you can you you know the age of the leaf by how many hairs are on it or there's the baimu dan or the white peony style which this is that style which means that it has open leaf as well as buds of leaf it sounds so floral it's so beautiful the white the open leaf is a more mature leaf so it has a more developed flavor so you're getting a beautiful little porcelain tray. Um, which comes on our which you're, weigh, you're weighing So we the weigh tea. the tea. Uh, this is a... So you get the exact the amount exact exactly. in the little teapot. We like tea to pot. make the same cup of tea. Well, it's never the same cup of tea, but as close to as possible is the same cup of tea every time so that our customers get a clear representation of, of what that cup of tea is. So this is three grams of the ancient moonlight we put into our warmed teapot. And so this is filtered water. This is filtered water, absolutely. Tea is 99.9% water. Uh, so if it tastes of chlorine and all of the chemicals that they use to treat our water, that, that you, you're starting off with that as your base flavour rather than just pure water. Would rainwater be Stunning, okay? stunning. The goal of a true specialty tea drinker is to drink tea from the, that's made with the water from the stream that runs past the tea field, that feeds the tea field that that tea came from. Well, at least you can imagine it, I suppose. Exactly. I'm looking forward to going to Yunnan in a couple of years to to experience that. There's quite a ritual associated with tea in all cultures, really, isn't there? From, From Iran to Britain. Absolutely, absolutely. Morocco and their beautiful minty teas... Tea is such an evocative, when it's really good tea, it transports you to to some other time and place. I love when the big, beefy, wild Englishmen that you think are, you know, soccer hooligans come in and ask for a nice cup of green tea. It's one of my favourite experiences of the day, Um, which happens, it happens quite a bit. That's really lovely. All right, so that's our two minutes. Oh, right, so it's been brewing for two minutes. Yeah. We're pouring it out into a 
lovely glass. So it's it's like a, a brandy glass, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We, so we, we serve most of our teas come in glasses, and some comes in a ceramic cup. It just depends. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in something yeah. challenging. Yeah. The tea bag. The tea bag. The tea bag definitely has its place. It it really does. I actually drink quite a few herbal tisanes tea bags at home. Beautiful, orthodox, high-quality leaf in a tea bag, so it's just convenient and it's just easy, not anti it. And there, I think the tea bag was developed in America. I know Eleanor Roosevelt said women were like a tea bag. They don't know how strong they are until they're dropped in hot water. Absolutely, there we go. Beautiful. <laughs> so it's ready for me to it's drink. It's ready for you to drink. Yep. Beautiful. Yep. I'm smelling. Oh, it smells vaguely medicinal. <laughs> You're laughing at me. I'm I trying to be watching, a I love watching people drink tea. It's one of the most beautiful things. Well, I'm enjoying this tea. I do, I do taste the mountains, and I do taste. Yeah, I'm a bit transported. I think. Mm. Beautiful peonies, lovely. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that actually black tea? was formed so that it could travel yeah, further. Exactly. How do you process the black so tea? So black tea is Western-style tea. Black tea is Western tea. It's all very much drunk in China as well, where it's called red tea, but um, it's tea that's been fully oxidised. So after the tea is picked, it's left to wither for a while for some of the water to sort of come out of the leaves. And then those leaves are either rolled, if it's an orthodox tea, like a full-leaf tea, or the leaf is pulverised in a CTC machine, which means cut, tear, crush, and that just pulverizes the leaf and it oxidizes really quickly so the chemical interaction of oxygen and the chemicals within the leaf creates new flavors and deepens the flavor it also preserves the tea green tea is tea that is as soon as it's picked it's heated and that halts the oxidation so in japan they heat it with a wet heat which is why japanese tea tastes wet like wet cut grass, seaweed, all of those amazing savoury flavours. And in China it happens in a dry wok and that gives it sort of dry, refined, aromatic flavour. Now you have a particular bugbear about the water, the temperature. This is really tea at the high end. Absolutely. Because the teas have been processed in the different ways, they need different temperatures of water to bring out the best in that tea. The most common mistake made with tea is people put boiling water on green tea and then say that they don't like green tea. When you put boiling water on green tea, it releases all of the tannin straight away and you get a really bitter, astringent, dry, horrible-tasting drink. But if you just put 70-degree water and just leave it in there for, you know, 5, 30 seconds, maybe one minute, you'll get a soft, nutty, aromatic, beautiful, gentle drink. And my grandmother taught me you have to warm the teapot. Yep, she's right. Absolutely. And the brewing time, that's very important, isn't it? Very important. It's as important as temperature. Tea brewing is all about getting the right level of maximum flavour with just enough tannin to support that flavour, but without overpowering the flavour. So you've got for brewing... 70 degrees for about a minute is your ballpark for green tea. Black, black tea? Black tea, uh, boiling water for three minutes. Oolong? Oolong is around sort of 80 to 85, and then depending on how you want to brew it, sort of generally around two minutes, but you could start off at five seconds. And much longer for the white tea? Much longer for the white tea, indeed, yeah. And, and about 80 degrees. 
It's like white teas often need sort of five to seven minutes to get the best out of them. And that's the one that needs the lower temperature too. So is it going to be cold by the time you drink it? Tea cosies. Ah, that's Mm. where the... Yeah, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. (laughs) Oh, what's that? That's cakes. Oh, cakes, yes. What do you eat with tea? Do you have particular foods that you eat with particular teas that you recommend? Eggy dishes. Oolong is beautiful with eggy dishes because oolong has this ability to cut through fat. So if you're eating a, like a, a fatty piece of wagyu or a yolky egg dish, you, if you have a roasted oolong, the flavour of the roasted oolong is big enough to stand up to the wagyu and the egg yolk, but it also it cleanses your palate so that you can keep tasting the amazingness of the wagyu or the egg yolk. Now, amounts. You, you, you measure it, but if I'm just using a, a teaspoon... Mm. So in my grandmother taught me that if you were having four persons, a teapot for four, you would have four teaspoons and one for the pot. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Once you get into tea, you learn the different styles of tea and you know the general rules for different teas. Like black tea is generally a teaspoon per person. And if it's a big pot, you you just throw an extra one in. The general rule, if you want a stronger tea, though, is to put more tea in, not to leave it to brew for longer. So stronger, not longer. Because otherwise the tannin takes over. Exactly. That's it. Yep. Oji cha. Ah, yes. This is the roasted Japanese green tea. Except that it doesn't look green at all. It It looks a beautiful amber colour. Yeah. So that's because it's been roasted. The roasting gives it this exquisite, nutty, caramelly, beautiful flavour, but also removes most of the caffeine. So it's called twig tea or baby tea in Japan as well, and it's given to children because that most of that caffeine has been removed. Okay, yeah. let's have some. All righty. Oh, wow. Now that, for me, it's like a proper cup of tea, but it just has this other kind of exotic quality to it. So yeah. it's, it feels safe but slightly mysterious. Exactly, exactly. Mm. It's a bit like autumn. Now you don't put milk in your tea, presumably. If... You put milk in that, there's, there's no tannin in that. And so the milk will just take over and it'll just taste like a warm, insipid cup of milk. Whereas because the black teas have that, lots of the assam in them generally or broken leaf in them, that the, the strength of the broken leaf and the assam release a lot of tannin into the water that when you add the milk in, it balances beautifully. Okay, tell me, it's the perennial argument, milk first or after? I've done it, and and milk first is definitely superior. Tea aficionado Hannah Dupree with Anita Barrow. And do you agree that it's milk first? What about only drinking out of porcelain and turning that pot three times anti-clockwise? As I mostly drink coffee, I do need some schooling on what's right and wrong in tea etiquette. You can help me by leaving tips on the RN website or via our Facebook page. You're listening to RN First Bite. My name's Michael McKenzie. I'm in Sydney as I speak. I've come to the Royal Botanic Gardens on a mission because I've heard tell of an interactive electronic tablecloth and it's stretching here before me on the table. The person behind this is Corinne Ledger. And Corinne, take us through this enormous patterning of plates and wires and glasses. What's going on? Firstly, I did illustrations that are like colonial illustrations. So this is the old... 
And then I wanted the cloth have an element of modernity, which you've got with the electronics. Basically, I've created switches, and a plate might go on the switch, and it will light up a LED. Or LED light. LED, that's right, that's right. This is very new technology that's becoming quite popular, and it's sewable. So you can sew these electronics onto anything, bags, cloths, whatever you like. So I thought, why not have one as an electronic tablecloth? So when you put this plate, as you so just did... So when I put this onto on here... here on the fish. Um, yes, on the fish. So the fish is actually local, but I'm thinking fish. And as you can see, I've done interactive thread, and yes. that's what makes the circuit. And when you follow that up, it joins up with this information here. So it's like a game. So if you put the plate onto one of the place settings, yes. lights will light up over different words. And, and so in this case yeah. it says some native species are eaten. That's right, yeah. and so that's the fish. And then if you go along to the cow... Yep. There, it yep, there it is. It's glowing. Yes, it's glowing. So this, so this plate has got a cow on it, and you're putting right. the cow plate on red meat. That's right. And, and then it's non-native. Oh, so it's it? a non-native. So the cloth is also designed to make you think, contemplate. The conviviality, which is part of slow food philosophy, starts at the table. So this is where we start our meal. and we, This is a way to get you thinking about what you're eating, thinking about your food, your food source, maybe the producers, thinking about whether it's native or non-native and things like that. Now, for the indigenous items I've got here, I've just done a kangaroo and I did another plant around the side. For these, I've got something different. I've got a little buzzer. So what we have is a light source that you will put the plate over and then we have a buzzer sounding. The reason I used the buzzer, a loud noise, was just to kind of alert people, ooh, these items are not commonly eaten or even thought about because we basically eat mainly non-Indigenous foods. Most of the foods that we eat have been brought into this country. So the buzzer goes off when you're talking about things like kangaroo, well, crocodile, yes, possum, that's right, snake. Anything, anything like that. The sky's the limit with what you can do with You can this. make this a, a local tablecloth where you're talking about connecting foods and, and consumption in just your area, exactly, couldn't you? Exactly, yeah. exactly. You can do so many things with it. So there'll be stories about food and eating food and tasting food and being part of foods. Corinne Ledger creator of the interactive tablecloth, just part of this event taking place next weekend at Rathbourne Lodge in Sydney's Royal Botanic Gardens. It's part of Good Food Month. There'll be guided tours of Indigenous food along with tastings and talks, and I'll put a link up online. But that's us for now. Feel free to download our audio or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Program producer is Maria Tickle, technical savagery from Matthew Sigley. I'm Michael McKenzie, and next time... 4,300 kilometres in less than half an hour when I take you onto the Indian Pacific for a food and wine tour from coast to coast. You don't need no ticket, just get on board. Bye for now. In the 70s and the 80s, we were recognised internationally as leaders in the field. And this wasn't mining or cricket, but rather solar research and manufacturing. We had a Solar World Congress in 1983 and we had something like 1,500 people to hear what was going on here. That wouldn't happen these days. Today, our research is being used by the Germans, Americans and Chinese. So what's happened? You can download this revision from the RN website. 